This is Toastcaster, podcast for Toastmasters. Your host, Greg Gazin. Episode 81, Toastmasters Myths and Urban Legends, with distinguished Toastmaster and past international director, Mike Rafferty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of Toastcaster podcast for Toastmasters. We have another special guest here today. We have with us a distinguished Toastmaster, Mike Rafferty. He's from Chicago. He is a distinguished Toastmaster, a past international director from Region 5, 2008-2010. He also, in 2014, received a presidential citation from Toastmasters International. He's a member of Trustmasters, a company that meets at his company. When he's not Toastmastering, I'm sure Mike is doing all kinds of things, but at work, he is the Vice President of Availability, and he joins us on the line from his home in the Chicago area. Mike Rafferty, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I have to ask, Vice President of Availability, that sounds really interesting. What, what's that all about? Well, basically, it's trying to make sure that the computer systems are available when we need them, which is pretty much 24-7. And in order to make sure that they're available 24-7, we have to figure out what happens when they aren't, when they crash, when things break. And so I try to figure out why do the computers go down? What can we do to make sure that they don't go down again? I know it's not Toastmasters related, but I, I was really, really curious. One of the reasons I asked you here today is at the beginning of April, Toastmasters put out the leader letter. And in the leader letter, there was an article called the Top 5 Toastmaster Club Myths. As soon as I saw that, the first person, you're actually the first person that came to mind because I know that you're a very active Toastmaster on on Toastmasters International official Facebook pages and the LinkedIn pages. And I know that there was some commentary about it and you just jumped right in there. So I thought, well, why not have you on the line? Because there's certainly a lot of different myths and urban legends out there. So I thought I'd get your take on on some of them. Sure. It's always interesting what turns into a myth, and it's sometimes interesting seeing a new myth get started. For example, with Pathways, there's a number of myths that seem to already be getting started in some districts about what Pathways is and what it does. And the myths have to start somewhere, and hopefully we can try to keep things on track. <laughs> of course, Pathways is the new educational program that we will that is forthcoming, and I believe it's already out in certain districts, but not necessarily in all of them. I think we're in Region 4, District 99, and I think we're a little further down the list. But looking at the club myths, looking at the myths from the, the leader letter, the first one talks about voting in of membership, and it says the, the myth number one is clubs do not have to vote in all new members. And what's your take on that, Mike? Well, if nothing else, the club constitution says clubs must vote in new members. That's one reason to do it. And the constitution has been reviewed by corporate lawyers. And, you know, there's all sorts of jokes about lawyers, but sometimes they have useful things to tell us. And a, a private association is defined by the fact that we do vote members in. The lawyers tell us we need to vote people in. The constitution says to vote people in. And you know what? There are some benefits to voting people in, it makes them feel like they are wanted, that they belong, that they've joined something significant rather than just this strange book club that will take anyone who walks in the door. The voting process in different clubs happens at, I guess, different places. I know in our particular club, it happens typically at a business meeting, and we like to make a really big thing out of it because obviously membership in Toastmasters is is a privilege. But sometimes it happens where... 
a member doesn't get voted in for one reason or another. Maybe the club forgot or maybe the club is too small. Maybe the executive weren't around for whatever reason. So which leads, of course, into myth number two, which says if a club did not vote a member in, the club cannot vote a member out. Is that true? That's right. It is two separate issues. Voting members in is one process. Voting members out is a completely different process. The two are not linked. So there are clubs that don't vote members in at all. They've chosen for whatever reason to not do so. They, they feel it's elitist or otherwise. I, I don't agree with it, but those clubs may still have members that are just not compatible with the club and they need to be voted out and that can happen. So if they're voted out, how does that come about? Voting out a member, there is an entire process in the governing documents about that. But basically, the voting out is a matter of having a majority of the members at an approved at, at a business meeting with a quorum take a vote. It's essentially that, although there's a number of things that should be done before that to try to make sure that everything possible has been done first to keep this person in the club if they can function and do well. If it happens to be a real challenging situation, they just might decide to to go away quietly. And then, of course, it's not necessarily an issue. Absolutely. Sometimes it's just a matter of talking to the person and they'll realize this isn't the place for them and they'll walk away. But there are bad situations, sexual harassment, whatever, where a member needs to be voted out and there's simply no other way around it. Yeah, I've seen situations where someone would come in and all they're really there is to pitch their real estate or pitch their business. So instead of doing manual speeches, they just end up doing sales pitches each time, which a lot of clubs really do, they don't necessarily care for that. Now, of course, if they can fit their presentations within the guys, within the speech project manuals, obviously that's something that might work a little better. Yes, indeed. If they treat the club as a captive audience for their sales pitch, that's a good way to kill a club. If they want to practice their speeches without any intention of actually selling to the members, all that's fantastic. That's what Toastmasters is there for. Yeah, we actually had a situation recently, I, you know, I'm digressing a little here with, we had a, a young lady who was an engineer for an organization and she became a sales engineer, I guess in some respects, like the sort of a salesperson. And she was going to be giving a presentation at a conference. And what she did is she actually broke up her, I think, 40-minute presentation. I don't think she did the whole thing at the club, but she broke it up into three seven-minute speeches. So she gave us about 21, roughly 21 or 22 minutes of her speech. She took what she learned from each section, and then she subsequently kept improving it. In fact, just two weeks ago, she reported that she came back, and it was a, a huge success. That is an excellent way to apply Toastmaster skills to the real world. And the funny thing is, I said, would you have been able to do this speech if you had not been in Toastmasters? And she said, no, I wouldn't have been able to do the speech. And most likely, she probably would not have been in her sales position as well. Myth number three says club officers have the authority to change how a club operates. So the next line refers to meeting times and locations, which are part of the club constitution standard options. And that sort of thing does indeed have to be voted upon by the club. The officers alone have no authority to make any sort of change like that. The club constitution is very clear on this. Everything the officers do must be approved by the membership at a business meeting with a quorum present. Now, of course, a club executive can meet ahead of time. They can discuss it. They can get some input from the members. And then, they, of course, they could put forward some recommendations. And I would assume that would probably be the better way to go. Definitely. They can put forward recommendations, they can and bring it to the club for a vote, but they have to go to that vote of the club membership for it to be official, to, for it to take effect. 
Now, this is not necessarily a myth, but it's a question I have that relates to this. What would happen in a situation, for example, of let's say you have a, a corporate club and they've got quite a large number of members, but a lot of the members are away all the time so that they can't all attend at the same time. And it's virtually impossible to get quorum to make changes. What can be done in that particular case? That's not terribly unusual. And fortunately, the club constitution addresses that with the inactive member idea. The club can vote into effect a policy on members who don't attend will be classified as inactive members, and then you don't need to count them for quorum. The club might have 40 members that are paid and in good standing, but if 20 of them haven't attended the last three meetings and the club has a policy voted in to that effect, then for quorum purposes, there might only be 20, and then they have to have 11 for a quorum. But they'd have to have quorum to be able to pass that policy, right? <laughs> it is a bit of a chicken or the egg problem. They have to have a quorum in order to pass the rule about a quorum. And that's just basic parliamentary procedure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Myth number four. This one I find really, really interesting because this is one that I did not know. I, I was totally lost when it came to this one. It's myth number four is clubs are required to participate in the DCP, in the Distinguished Club Program. I guess it depends on how you define participate. Every club will be measured and reported upon by the DCP goals, but there's no requirement that the club pay attention to that. They can completely ignore it. It's not in the club constitution. There is no requirement to do anything with the DCP. The DCP is a very good KPI, a key performance indicator, and that comes from my computer background. That KPI tells us how well the club is doing in meeting the members' needs. As such, it's a very good thing to look at, but there's no requirement to do so. No, that's interesting. And that's the first time I've heard about it. What I was always told is that the, the DCP was more of a quantifiable metric with respect to gauging how well the club is doing. And it's also a, a goal to achieve for. It is. It, it's a very good way of measuring the way we meet the members' needs. And it really is about the members' needs. It's not about getting ribbons for the banner. I know there seems to be a high correlation between clubs that participate in the program and successful clubs. And even with club officer training, for example, you have clubs that say, oh, you know, we don't really need training. We don't need to send members to training. But yet when you look at the statistics at the end of the year, there's an extremely high correlation between clubs that have minimum of four, ideally seven officers trained and who are actually successful and are thriving clubs. It all depends on how you try to define a good club, a quality club. The DCP provides one fairly objective way of doing so. Generally speaking, if you go visit a club that's president's distinguished, you can be assured of encountering a good culture, friendly people, people who want to see you succeed in your communications and leadership goals. What would you recommend in terms of a club who doesn't want to participate? Let's just say they don't have a good enough reason. They just say, ah, we don't need it. Uh, our, our club, our members know what we want. You know, maybe they're they're an advanced club and they, they just they have the club more as a social social gathering. Well, Toastmasters isn't about a social gathering. I mean, yes, they are social gatherings, but that's secondary to the educational component. Toastmasters is an educational organization. It's not it's not primarily a social organization. Of course. <laughs> Sometimes you can't tell people that. If they've been there longer than you, they might actually tell you otherwise. Okay. True. Myth number five, it says membership applications aren't required in all instances. Well, that's another case of the club constitution and what our lawyers tell us needs to be done in order to stay in good standing in case bad things happened. 99.99% of the members and clubs will never see an issue with it, but for that 
occasion when it does happen, well, that's when you're glad you've got competent lawyers and that sort of thing. The U.S. tends to be a little more lawsuit happy, but other countries have laws and issues as well. Yes, every time you've got a new member, a dual member, in which case they're new to the club, reinstating, there's some time between when they were there, it could have been years, or a transfer member, someone who's coming in from another club to join. Yes, you need a membership application filled out. You need a vote by the membership. And then you go into Club Central and you record the new member. And you keep that application. You keep that application forever because that's a legal contract. There is no statute of limitations on when they might come back and find something bad. They might report or claim something bad happened years ago. Yeah, see, that last part I didn't know. I knew you were supposed to keep them. I didn't realize that you kept them indefinitely. It makes you wonder in some clubs where there's so much transition every year, the club executives change. The, there's a huge turnover in a lot of clubs. In fact, the club that I'm a member of, I've been a member for 15 years. The next person down is five years. Mm. I'm wondering where all the applications actually are sitting. Some They must be sitting somewhere. Hopefully. Again, for 99.99%, it'll never matter. But for those few that do, you'll be glad you have it. Now, one of the things to keep in mind is you don't have to keep the original paper. You can scan it and save that document, a PDF. That's great to know. Those are the top five that were mentioned in the leader letter. Now, back in 2015, on your website, MikeRafferty.com, you actually had your own list of Toastmaster urban myths and legends, and you have it broken down into contests, speeches, and club operations. And you've got about, looks like there's about 30 or 35 here. Are there any in particular that, that stick out to you that you find that you come across quite often sort of answering that same question over and over again? Well, one I think is especially funny is a myth that turned into a fact. Okay. <laughs> Enlighten me. <laughs> With contests, it used to be that there was a two-month grace period for clubs and members to be in good standing after the due date of the dues, April 1st and November uh, and October 1st. Right. They changed that policy in July of 2016. There is no grace period anymore. If you're in an area contest on October 2, you better have paid your club dues from October 1 or else you are no longer a member and you are not eligible for contests. That's right. You have to pay them and your club treasurer would have to pay them, submit them to Toastmasters International. Correct. You have to be in good standing all the way to TI. So if at any point it's found that you're not, you're basically history. Absolutely. That's a scary one. Speaking of contests, maybe one or two others that, with respect to contests, some myths that seem to be floating around out there? Oh, for example, the international contest... How many speeches do you have to have completed before the club contest? Six, except if you're a new club, correct? Except if you're a new club, correct. But the interesting detail is the six have to be done before the contest, before the club contest. There were some people who thought that the speech in the contest itself could be the number six. No, that would only be five before the contest then. They would have had to have completed six. Here's one other question that sometimes comes up. Do they have to be the first six? Mm, I'd have to check the rule book. I think it says six, but that is one that is specifically answered in the rule book. If you, if you just reference that, you always want to have a copy of the rule book at the contest. The rule book itself says you should give a copy of the rule book to every judge. And make sure it's the most current rule book because things do change. They do change every year. For example, the grace period. Another favorite of mine is speaking area. There are some people still who think that you can be disqualified from a contest if you go outside the speaking area. That's not true. There's only a few reasons you can be disqualified, and that is eligibility, originality, 
and timing. If you go outside the speaking area, you are still a contestant. You're not disqualified. It might be a problem for video recording or an audio system. There is no disqualifying someone for going outside of the speaking area. One of the things I like to do when I'm running a contest is I simply declare the entire room to be the speaking area. And I've seen that used effectively. I saw someone give a contest speech about baseball. During the course of the speech, she moved around the room to the four corners as if she was running the bases, first, second, third base, and a home run. If the speaker has a good reason to use the whole room, hey, let's let them use their creativity. That makes sense. As long as the judges will be able to hear them or see them. If they can't hear them and they can't see them, then it makes it a little bit more difficult for them to judge. Quite true. But at the same time, we have to allow the contestant to make that choice. What about the salutation during a speech, Mr. Toastmaster, fellow Toastmasters, etc.? Is that something that's necessary? Not necessary at all, although you will see judges marked on a contestant for doing so. I would recommend doing so just because of that, because of that informal expectation. That question seems to come up at judges' training, but yet some, if someone asks me personally, that's I pretty much tell them that, but I say it's probably not a bad idea to include it just in case. If you look at the World Championship of Public Speaking, they all do that. It's actually a good gauge. They all reference the MC at some point. Sometimes, sometimes when they're flat on the floor on their face, but yes, they all do. <laughs> Is that Mr. LaCroix you're thinking of by any chance? <laughs> exactly, yes. Who won? Have you stayed down too long? Yes. What about general speech myths? Oh, let's see. How much of the communications is nonverbal? Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. There are people who say 70% is nonverbal or 93% is nonverbal. No, that's a misunderstanding of an academic study. And in my blog entry, I link to the academic study with the actual numbers. Oh, that's the seven. Is that the seven, the 38 and the 55? I can't remember exactly which one it is. It's something like that. It's actually much smaller. It's the words. The words really do count. The words are what communicates the message. The body language, the facial expressions is what reinforces and supports the message. I also, there's one actually, one I want to make reference to in your list here was failing of a speech. Yes. Can you fail a speech? Can you be forced, required to redo a speech? No. In Toastmasters, there is no pass or fail. You always get credit for trying. An evaluator could suggest a redo of a speech. Sure. And I would say that should probably be done privately, not part of the public evaluation. But it's the member's choice as to whether to redo it. They always get credit for trying. Yeah, that's that's a good recommendation. I know myself, I've done speeches where I felt I could have done a lot better and no one actually came out and said, you know, you failed your objectives, you didn't necessarily meet your objectives. But there are times where you feel like, you know what, maybe it's a good idea to uh, to do this again. Yes. And if the member is really interested in learning and getting better, they, they will strongly consider redoing it. Now, one issue that sometimes comes up is what about the member who seems to be just racing through it, giving a speech every time that doesn't even consider the objectives? Uh, they might be giving a CC body language speech and they had zero body language and didn't even attempt to do anything because they didn't care. They just wanted to check it off and eventually get their CC or higher award. I would argue that the appropriate path then is, of course, to provide as much counseling as possible. Try to coach the member into doing the right thing. But if they continue to flagrantly ignore the speech objectives, that might be a time where you need to vote a member out. Yeah. And I've seen that happen a couple of times where a member is moving away at the end of June and so just decides to rip through the manual. 
Along those lines, what about doing the same speech over and over again? So you take the same speech and you do it 10 times. Well, it's almost impossible to do the same speech twice. You will give it differently unless you've memorized every word in it and the audience reacts identically. Yes, you can take a speech and you can improve it. And that's very common with contest speeches. Go talk to some of the world champions and they'll talk about how they take a speech and they'll go through the entire CC manual or most of it, at least the first seven projects. And they will take that speech and focus on the structure, the body language, the right words and all that sort of thing, using the CC projects to refine it into a diamond. Perfectly allowable. I don't actually see it that often. I've seen people do it maybe do a couple of times, but not take physically take that exact same speech. And I have seen some people do it and say, well, you know, I'm just going to get credit again. It's my speaking slot and I missed my time last time. So I'm just going to do the same speech over and over again. I wouldn't like to see that. I'm, I'm hoping what they should be doing is taking the speech and improving it with the objectives of that project in mind. If they're doing that, that seems perfectly acceptable to me and, and is certainly allowed by any rules. Remember, there is no failure for trying. That's true. And if you get really good feedback, the speech most likely will change. I'm I'm thinking back in 2014 when I entered the humorous speech contest. I didn't win a district, but I came in third. If I look at the original speech that I started at the club level, by the time I got to the district level, the speeches were night and day. Yes, the speech will improve every time you give it if you're doing it right. Mike, there are quite a number of Toastmasters, urban myths and legends that you make reference to in your blog post. Is there one in particular that you find that is either the most important or something that you feel that really nags you that you want to get across to us? Sure. This one's a little bit controversial, but I have seen some really interesting discussions online about it. And that is regarding the topic of whether clubs should start with a prayer and or pledge of allegiance. In... Certain parts of the U.S., they can't imagine starting a public function without a prayer and pledge of allegiance. And that's fine for them. It's a different culture. But in most of the U.S., and certainly outside the U.S., they're unheard of. You don't start a non-religious event with a prayer, which is going to be religious by definition. It's very rare to see any sort of nationalistic pledge outside the U.S. So for those clubs that want to do a prayer or pledge... That's fine. I I just hope they're aware that they might possibly be putting off potential members who don't share the same religion or same nationality, but it's their choice. There's certainly no requirement to have a prayer or pledge of allegiance, though. That's the key point. It is not required at all. I can certainly see where that could potentially be controversial. Well, I'd like to slip in one more, Mike, just, and this one is not controversial at all, although some people might find it controversial, and it's actually on your list under Club Operations Myths. And it's the table topic evaluations as being standard or a required part of the program. Yes. Table topics evaluations are not terribly common in my experience. Clubs tend to grow by spawning from another club, by, by being spun off by another club. And so they inherit whatever cultural standards and mores that the previous club had. So you'll find that in certain regions... In, in a very random way, as far as I can tell, it's like every club has table topics evaluations. And then in others, there's none. Like around Chicago, no one's even heard of table topics evaluations. It's just not even done. No one's even thought of it. And you'll notice it's not on the Toastmasters uh, documents or manuals. There's nothing in there about table topics evaluations. I can see the good things about giving feedback to everyone, including the table topic speakers. It does take up some time on the agenda. It, it's a club choice. 
The club that I belong to, when we first started meeting, we had a time limit restriction in terms of what time we had to be out. And over time, that changed as we changed locations and and the situation sort of changed. We did start integrating table topics evaluations into the evaluations program, and it comes right after the speech evaluations. And we find the table topics evaluations extremely valuable, plus we find it's a real challenge for evaluators, especially newer people. And it really puts them on the spot because not only do they have to evaluate one speech, they could be evaluating six or seven individuals. So it really pushes their evaluation skills to the limit. And we find that it really pays off. One approach I found to reduce that burden a bit is an alternating approach. They have two table topics evaluators and they alternate odds and evens. Oh, that's a great idea. Never thought of that. Wow. Well, I know, Mike, we could probably speak here for hours, <laughs> and I know we're running out of time. <laughs> One of the things I'd like to mention is I would like to thank you for all the work that you've done in terms of supporting the members, both on the LinkedIn, on the official Toastmasters, the official Toastmasters Facebook page, because I know there's lots of commentary up there. There's lots of questions being asked, and it's amazing how quickly you're up there and answering the questions. And I personally have I've gained some insight based on a number of things and number of responses that you've given. So on a personal note, I do want to thank you for, for doing all that. Oh, thank you for your kind words. Mike, if somebody wants to get a hold of you or find out about some of the resources or maybe perhaps check out the blog post that you did on the Urban Myths and Legends, how can they get a hold of you? My email address is on my website, MikeRafferty.com, or you can reach me at MikeRafferty at Earthlink.net. That's M-I-K-E-R-A-F-F-E-T-Y at Earthlink.net. My blog is there with uh, this article, for example, and others. There's also a number of resources there, things like a sample guest welcome packet, another one with hundreds of membership building ideas, uh, many more. Take a look through it, and I think you'll find something useful there. I hope everyone will find something useful there. Mike Rafferty, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Once again, this is Greg Gazin. We appreciate you tuning in. Now, I'm not sure how you joined us, whether you joined us through directly through Toastcaster.com or iTunes, but either way, you can pick up the podcasts there. If you really enjoyed the podcast, we'd really appreciate if you took a moment to leave us some feedback on iTunes because it really helps with our ratings. Plus, also feel free to drop us a line. Tell us what types of things you're interested in, what your Toastmaster specialty is, or what kinds of things you like to speak about. And perhaps maybe we'll even have you on the show. This is Greg Gazin. Till the next time. This episode was sponsored by Corey Outsmarts the Butterflies. A new book by Greg Gazin, geared to ages 8 to 80. Whether you want to improve your speaking skills or build your confidence, this short read is suitable for all ages. It's available at outsmartingthebutterflies.com.